Hello and thanks for tuning in to Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. Today Brian brings us talk number four in this series of ten programs and they're all about the model for Christian church life found laid out for us in the New Testament. In other words, we're seeking to discover what God intended when New Testament Christian disciples began collective service for God. So, now let's continue with Brian to see how the first local church came into being. Okay, John, let's pick up where we left off last time. We were busy exploring the list of seven things which characterise the first church of God at Jerusalem, as listed in Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. These verses tell us that the first Christian believers continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the church prayers. It's perhaps worth commenting, first of all, on what's meant by to continue steadfastly. The idea is something like being earnest towards a thing or persevering diligently with it. We might say they stuck at these things mentioned here, which things were again the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the church prayers. If we can catch anything of the original sense, it might be true to say they persisted obstinately in these things. If that today suggests a negative connotation, then perhaps adhering firmly is better. It's interesting that the same word appears in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 9, in one of the recorded instances of Jesus preaching and teaching by the seashore. There was concern expressed that the crowd of listeners might crush in around Jesus. So out of thoughtfulness, provision was made that a little boat should wait on him. It's this same word, meaning continue steadfastly, that's used there. The boat was to keep close to the shore, in constant readiness, and to track along the shoreline as Jesus himself moved. Whether he needed it or not, we're not told, but it was there anyway, always ready. Now, we can't necessarily force the same translation in another context, but it may suggest another angle to think around, namely that these first believers stayed close to the Lord, moving with him in accordance with his will, and with a constant readiness to wait on him so as to serve him in the four ways described as the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the church prayers. As we see clearly, theirs was a learning that lived, a fellowship that functioned, a worship that warmed, and a praying that was powered all in their service for the Lord. So having dealt previously, as we say, with the three personal actions listed in Acts 2 and verse 41, we now want to examine in some more detail the remainder of the list, which describes continuing involvement by the whole local church. For they were to continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. At this point, perhaps we can begin to appreciate that in some sense this list in Acts 2, 41 and 42 has got to be viewed as a protective setting. Let me explain what I mean by that. For a start, it's quite inappropriate, as you will doubtless agree, that a non-believer should participate in the breaking of the bread at the Lord's table. For the Acts 2 verses clearly state that receiving the word must precede everything else in the list in order to make what follows meaningful. And then notice also, if you will, that these verses in Acts chapter 2 also mention baptism in sequence prior to any participation in the breaking of the bread, or Holy Communion as some refer to it. How right it is that there should be acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ before there's any participation at the Lord's table. 
And then through addition, and so now as an added part of a biblical church of God, a believer has then the privilege and responsibility to break bread. Now, the breaking of the bread in the New Testament is always, although sometimes implicitly so, it's always presented as a corporate act of those who are biblically constituted a church of God in a given locality. We notice how the Apostle Paul sets the instruction, this do in remembrance of me in the context of when you come together in church. I'm referring to these statements of Paul's coming in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This do in remembrance of me is quoting verse 25, and the context when you come together is quoting verse 18 there in that 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And this is Paul giving teaching that's in fulfilment of the Lord's words in Luke chapter 22. It's also quite telling when in the adjacent verses, Paul there speaks against some of those who were abusing the privilege of participation in the breaking of the bread. He's accusing them of despising the church of God. What that does is underline the strength of connection between the two, between the breaking of the bread and the church of God. He's not accusing them of despising the breaking of the bread, but he's accusing them of despising the church of God. And that shows pretty conclusively where the breaking of the bread rightly belongs as one of the four continual functions of a biblical church of God modelled in the pattern of Acts chapter 2. Remember, we're emphasising how the four things listed in Acts 2.42 were corporate items, things which they did together with each other. The fact that they were a community who did those things is underlined in the fact that it says they continued steadfastly in the fellowship. The community in question began in Acts chapter 2, certainly as a movement empowered by God's Spirit it began then, and from Acts 2 verses 44 to 47 we get a genuine sense of the character of its community life from reading about the actions of those who belong to it. This is what we read. Out of love, they provided for each other's practical needs. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, sharing them with all, as anyone might have need, day by day continuing with one mind, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. It's said of them that they were together. That word signifies either at one time, or in one place, or in one thing. The last of these three senses seems to be the most fitting here, for it's hardly likely that the believers, who were then 3,000 in number, besides the 120, were all able to meet at one time in one place in Jerusalem. But what was it that gave them this sense of togetherness, this quality of fellowship? It had been made possible by the descent of the Holy Spirit, as recorded earlier in Acts chapter 2. There's no mention of koinonia, or fellowship, in the New Testament before that. This was a unity of the Spirit in arriving at what the Bible calls the fellowship, as something belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes today we relegate the word fellowship to mean enjoying a cup of coffee with a Christian friend. But biblically, fellowship meant a joint participation in things of mutual interest. And that interest, which they shared in common, was something produced in them by the Holy Spirit. There are various ways in which 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 has been translated. But it was describing a local church exactly like this one. And one learned commentator says the words here, 
the fellowship of the Son of God may reflect the idea of the fellowship of believers that has been formed in his Son. Yes, that's it. A fellowship of believers owned by the Lord. Now factor in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, and we arrive at a definite community of born-again disciples, all baptised by immersion in water, all added locally to Church of God fellowship, all serving according to one pattern of teaching in every place, all maintained under a fellowship of elders while being separated to God. What was true in the church fellowship at Jerusalem was equally true of the fellowship of churches. And so a people formed in New Testament times which mirrored God's people in the Old Testament. There was a difference, however. In the Old Testament, God's people were physically together in one location. Now that was no longer true physically. Instead, here was what Jesus had looked forward to when speaking with the woman at Sychar's well in John 4, when he said, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. No physical locations would be any longer of the essence, but they'd be replaced with a spiritual gathering of disciples of Christ, No longer a physical gathering in any one place, but a single people who, although in different places geographically, were spiritually united together on the same page like the original community at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. All God's revealed purposes in the past, through Abraham to Moses and beyond, were centred on the establishment of a community of believers who would come together in unity of heart and purpose, in close relationship not only with each other, but also with God, so close in fact that God repeatedly referred to them as my people in the Old Testament. It's not in the least bit surprising then to find that same value and importance given to the idea of community in the New Testament amongst those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to follow their example, there's no room for a lowest common denominator approach today. Was it not our Lord's expressed desire for his followers that they may all be one? Unity like this can only be reached through a sincere commitment on our part to carefully follow the teaching pattern the Lord laid down in his word. The apostolic teaching, which Paul transmitted to Timothy, was no mere outline or rough sketch of truth. What Paul had handed to Timothy for safekeeping was the pattern of sound words. The word pattern means a mould or model, So something definite and precise. One Bible version, in fact, translates it as the standard, as in the standard teaching in all the then churches of God. And that's exactly what it was. For Paul taught the same thing wherever he went. He says, as I teach everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Among their gatherings were times when they came together to pray. Pray without ceasing, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Not non-stop prayer, of course, for that would be impossible. The same word long ago was used to describe the hacking cough which someone might have. They weren't coughing non-stop, but if ever you were in that person's company, you'd be left to no doubt that they'd had a cough that was persistent. So we, as Christian believers, are commanded to develop a regular habit of prayer, church prayer, as well as a personal prayer life.
The Christian Church should be a vibrant, courageous collection of Christian believers, full of the character and beauty of Christ. So let's seek to be so, for the sake of the Master we serve. With this series of talks, there's a transcript booklet containing all of them, and it's free. So if you'd like one or more, please tell us. And I'm about to give you、uh, contact details. So if you've your pen and paper to hand, here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, PO Box 70115, Chilomani, Blantyre, Malawi. And here's our email address. It's sft at churchesofgod. Info. I'd like to remind you of different ways of re-listening and accessing previous series of books, and one way is by looking up www.searchfortruth.org.uk on your computer, and you'll find our church's main website where you can download some actual programs and accompanying transcripts. Also, look out for Search for Truth featuring on www.twr360.org. And this will give you yet another excellent way of accessing again what you first heard here on air. So many thanks for your company today. We do appreciate your interest in these programs. And next week, Brian widens the scope of our theme and looks into the Old Testament book of Genesis. So I hope you can join us. Until then, very best wishes from Brian, from David, from our singers, and from me, John. So goodbye, and may God richly bless you.